All right, so we are on part three of our uh, series on prophecy and social justice. Um, again, I'm Dr. Eric Walsh. Um, I'm going to start with our scripture reading, and then we're going to go right into this third part, and we're going to look at uh, the French Revolution and its effect, its shadow, all the way down today, and then give an example of how the principles of the French Revolution actually still affect how we look at things today and how it impacts our society today. So our scripture reading... It's taken from 1 Samuel chapter 15, one of my favorite Bible verses. It says, it, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So our third installment in our Prophecy and Social Justice series, Under the Spell of Revolution under the spell of revolution. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to go further into your word and into these topics. I just ask now, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. I ask for guidance. I pray, Lord, that uh, all that is said and done will be done to your name's honor and glory. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know where my room attendant is, but if she knows where the guys that do this, this recording, I don't know that it's recording and I'm going to start anyway. It's all right, I can, I'll do it again for Pennsylvania camp meeting, and then uh, they'll film it too, it'll be even better. I'll put it on audio verse. All right, so we're going to go to one of, the, one, of the, one of the toughest parts of the Bible and really start getting into some prophecy. And what I mean toughest, I mean the part that you really have to kind of dig and stay there and look at. And unfortunately, we don't have time. This isn't a Revelation seminar, but I want to look at Revelation chapter 11 briefly and then look at some history and then look at how this applies to today. I know everybody just had lunch, um, so and it was harder to stay awake. You know, if I had more time, I'd have everybody get up and shake hands or do something. But we're just going to go for it. If you get sleepy, it's all right. Revelation 11:1 1 says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and them that worship therein. And so this is speaking to judgment, which tells you that this prophecy is, a, is speaking to a time before the uh, end of the investigative judgment or pointing towards it. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles in the holy city, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And so this helps you find out exactly where in the prophetic stream they're talking about, right? So if, the, if it's talking about the forty-two months, we're talking about the 1260-year prophecy that ends in 1798. So we're looking at the prophecy that starts in... 538 and ends in 1798. And this is what is being looked at. And so it was given to the Gentiles and the holy city, meaning the people of God, were trampled under for that time. And we know that that's true, as we're going to talk about. It says in verse 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. What do the two witnesses represent? Old and New Testament, it represents the scripture, um, the revelation of God before the birth of Christ, the revelation of God in his word after the birth of Christ. The Old and New Testament, right? To make that point clear, John the Revelator then writes, these are the two olive trees, and then from the Old Testament prophecy on the olive trees, is the, it's the olive oil that represents the Holy Spirit. 
The word leads you, the Holy Spirit leads you to, into the word. The word leads you into the Holy Spirit. And two candlesticks standing before the God of earth. David says that, that God's word is like a lamp unto his feet. So we're talking about God's word. So during the 1260 years, we're still talking about social justice. Social justice was dead. Not only was social justice dead, there was a, a, a feudal system set up in Europe. Now here's where it gets interesting. Once you start to study history, a lot of things become more plain. Europe was a horrible place during the Dark Ages, as many of you would know. It was absolutely horrible. It was, there was, it was, it was in many ways barbaric and savage. You had things like the Spanish Inquisition that happened, a rough time. How did God's word, to fulfill this prophecy, how did it testify, though it was in sackcloth, during that time? Well, one of the things that happened in the 1500s was there was a Protestant Reformation. And even before Martin Luther, the word of God was speaking through these reformers, ultimately culminating in what Martin Luther did on October 31st when he hammered um, the 95 Thesis into the door of that church. And here, bam, what was speaking, even though it was clothed in sackcloth? That was the word of God. Right? So I used to say, isn't, you know, I used to ask the question, why wouldn't the Protestant Reformation be the wound that, that hurt the beast? That would make more sense than what Berthier did in 1798. But when you think about what it, what, what's going on, this is God's word. This is it prophesied. It would speak, and it did. And out of that time, these groups began to form, and people began to move further and further towards the truth. As you study Revelations, it, is a, it, often, it reveals the march towards a complete, a more complete, or the most complete revelation of truth. That culminates not at 1844, but in the time right afterwards. As the great disappointment, which I always say was not a great disappointment, it was a great purification. As the church is purified and all of the scragglers who really weren't in it for the right reasons fall away and just a handful, 50 so people are left and they study the Bible and they, and they begin to realize that it was the heavenly sanctuary that was being spoken of and the sanctuary message comes into view. Then the Sabbath message comes into view. 1888, righteousness by faith comes into view. And here, all of these truths come out, but they all happen after 1798, Right? So God's word is in sackcloth during that time. In verse 5 it says, And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies, and if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. What happened to those who sought to kill the word of God? Well, first and foremost, who was first trying to kill the word of God during the 1260 years? The papacy was, right? The papacy wanted to shut it down. The Bibles were chained to the, to, the, to the desks in the monasteries. It was against the law to have the Bibles. And as we're going to talk about the French Revolution, it culminates in the French Revolution where Bibles were taken. They were burned in public. Um, it was a war against the Bible on both fronts. And what the spirit of prophecy tells us is that because the papacy, and remember that France is the eldest, was the eldest son of the Vatican, of the papacy. It was in France that the, that the whole thing started, and it's in France that the whole thing ends in 1798, right? Of, of, the, of the ten tribes, this is the one that is the eldest son. So here, Catholicism was very strong, and it was very dark, and the consequences of that, stifling of the Bible and, and an attempt to destroy the Bible, means that those who tried to do it actually got the retribution they handed out, as we'll talk about. You'll see. Verse 6, these have power to shut heaven, 
that it rained not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over the water to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So some people say this is Elijah and Moses. I say I don't know that there's really a difference, right? It, at the end of the day, Moses is the one who wrote the, 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 the beginning stages, the, the first books of the Old Testament, representing the Old Testament. It is in the spirit of Elijah that the Messiah comes, and that is where we get our New Testament from. So yeah, I believe it's the Old and New Testament, but I see that the, both of those writers, both of whom are still alive, somebody ought to say amen, have to do with this, this prophecy. So here you get the Old Testament, the New Testament, those that come against them get into some big trouble. Then it says, and when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends, oh wait, I skipped one. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain in the, in the days of their prophecy, rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, speaking of Moses, Moses, and this is what I didn't want to skip, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So this ties you back to the Old Testament plagues, and, in, and, and, and when you go see, it actually ties you to the seven last plagues. All bridge. Revelation 11 is a real important chapter. Verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. What does this represent? You see, this beast is a beast we often don't account for. This beast is not given a shape. Isn't that interesting? There's no shape. Every other beast that looks like this, it looks like that. Um, there's another beast that doesn't give it a shape, and that's the, the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, which has two horns like a lamb, speaks like a dragon, but it never actually says what shape it has. And I believe that the two beasts are connected. The two different things, in a sense, but they're connected. And that is, the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 represents what? United States of America, two horns like a lamb. It's, the, it's a republic, a, a representative government. It's based on the Protestant principles of free choice, religious freedom. Those two things come together. I want to submit to you as an American, born and raised in the Constitution State, Connecticut, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, in my opinion, and I believe I could back this up even scripturally and historically, had to have been divinely inspired documents. They had to be. They write and do things in those documents that America doesn't do well for decades after they're written. The documents themselves are why America could live up to the noble um, ideas America was founded on. But there was another place that wrote a Bill of Rights, um, uh, the Rights of Man it was called. That was in the Republic of France. Now the French, just at, not long after the American Revolution of 1776, in 1789, the French begin to have a revolution. Now, that's why I say the two beasts are kind of connected. Both are republics, but there was a problem between the two republics. The American Revolution was designed, and, and, and there's a lot of backstory to it. You, people get into Masonics and all these things that go with the American Revolution. Let's just look at it from the surface for a second. The American Revolution was designed for a nation that followed biblical morality. That, that is actually the truth. It wasn't a Christian nation. That's a mistake when you say that. But it was designed so that people would choose, given choice, they would, be, they would tend to choose what's right because they came from a, a Judeo-Christian background. And if you read the founding fathers, that's what they said, right? It really wasn't designed for anarchists and, and, and Marxists. and It wasn't designed for it. It was designed in that context. 
right? The French Revolution is totally different. The reason it says that it's a beast that comes out of the abyss is that it comes seemingly out of nowhere. It just comes on the scene, and this, the, 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 the founding of the French Revolution, which will change the course of Earth's history, especially European history, is actually a very profound, and this actually goes long, far beyond Europe when you look at what happens from the French Revolution. Then it says, speaking of the two witnesses, that it would overcome them. Did that happen? Absolutely. For literally three and a half years, the, 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 the French actually, the, the, the ruling body at the time, votes that there is no God. Basically, and they say that their God is going to be the God of reason. And then they set up a goddess of reason. We'll talk more about that in a second. And that's what it is. And let me tell you something. That is in many ways the God that's being worshipped today. So uh, Pastor uh, Griggs, who's the head of the Pennsylvania Conference, great guy. I've gotten to know him a bit, and he and I talk about some of these things. And we talked about the challenge. You have to look at it in many ways, even when you look at... um, the seven heads later in Revelation. But when you look at this, uh, in some ways, we are still under, we are under this beast. If you think about it, that when, when America speaks like a dragon, some people think that a slavery qualifies for that. And I get it. That there's a dichotomy to America inherent in the description of the beast because of slavery. You wrote all men are created equal, but you had slaves. But really, it's when, man, when it speaks as a dragon, when it is religious intolerance that comes on the scene. And it is a legal fact. And that has not happened in America yet. Praise God. So we can all still go to church on Sabbath. We can all still go to Vespers on Friday night. We can all still have GYC in Portland. Amen? The day comes when that may not happen. The beast that really seems to be affecting us today more is this one. This is the beast of secularism. It is on this beast that the sexual revolution is founded. It is upon this beast that the rise in pornography, the proliferation of drug abuse, the, the idea that the, the self is divine, the, the kind of the beginning of the dovetailing of Eastern religions and Western philosophy begin to come together. It's this beast that does that. And when you look at today's social justice movements, you can learn a lot if you look at the French Revolution. A lot when you especially apply it from what the scripture says in Revelation chapter 11. Now watch this. Look at verse 8. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of that great city. Is it, is it recording? Oh, okay, okay. I, I, I thought it was messed up. My bad. All right. You can cut that out. All right. Um, Verse 8, and their dead bodies shall lie in the streets of, that, of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Some people say, well, this must be Jerusalem, because it's where our Lord was crucified. It has to be here and there. I believe it is, if there is a geographical location, it's France, but I don't think that that's what's important. You get it? That's not what's important. So if you go back, we have, we have two cities. The first city... Um, is the great is that is that great city right? Um, the, and the holy city here, right? Which represents Jerusalem, which really represents God's people. That's the first city in Revelation 11. But the second city, the second city is is that they lie in the street of that of the great city. So it's if the first city represents God's people, who does the second city represent? It represents those in many ways at war with God's people. And that's why when you look at it, it gives as geographical examples three cities, Sodom and then the nation of Egypt, and then, of course, the city where the Lord was crucified. 
So Jesus was crucified outside of the city propers of, the, of, the, of Jerusalem, but you say Jerusalem, and you look at all three of them, they give you some lessons. Sodom, why? I'm going to show you that Sodom's sin was not just a moral sin in the sexual moral sins that we think of. It was far deeper than that. Egypt's sin, if you read on, on these prophecies, Egypt's sin was when, when, when Moses got to Pharaoh, what did Pharaoh say? Who is this God that I should obey him? It is the rejection of God. And that's what the French Revolution, that's literally what happened. It was the first officially atheistic state in the world. Now, there have been a few that have followed. China, technically, or and all the other communist countries, the Soviet Union. And I'll say that in general, those states don't seem to last. The Soviet Union didn't last with that philosophy. And also where our Lord was crucified. And this speaks to the persecution. Verse 9. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three and a half, uh, three days and a half. This is the, that time when they literally outlawed the belief in God. Uh, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And the people cheered. They danced in the streets of Paris, and even sometimes more so in some of the rural towns of France. They cheered to death. They, they actually would go into some of the cathedrals, and they set up images to the goddess of reason. And they changed the churches. Even, I think even in Notre Dame they did this. This was a massive change. Before this time, the Protestants were highly persecuted. And here now, it comes that they're all Christianity all Christian beliefs are attacked. And just as it's prophesied, verse 10 says, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Why? It held up standard. And to this day, the Bible is something people hate. Because the Bible points out God's standard. So there, the Bible's under attack a lot of ways. It's a different seminar, but I'll say this. Be careful what translation you read, because some of them are less how that's the way that they're working. There's some of the modern translations, they're literally just going to water the Bible down and change it to the point where it is of no effect. So I tell people you can read multiple translations, whatever translation you want. When it comes to doctrine, stick to the King James Version, right? So you can read the other ones, because sometimes you do get better well, you know, English out of them. But doctrinally, that one is the most sound. Verse 12 and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, and we assume this is God's voice, come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And so what happens? We talk about the Bible societies that formed when you study Revelation seminars, and that's what happened. And instead of the Bible going away after the French Revolution, or God dying, as Voltaire said, the opposite was true in England and the United States, and all over the world, these Bible societies proliferated. When we were in India just a few weeks ago, um, and we were in... We were in uh, Bangalore. They took us to the Bible Society building there. It was very interesting. The guy giving us the tour was not Seventh-day Adventist, but he grew up and went to Seventh-day Adventist school. I thought it was very interesting. Um, and so he was showing us around, and he said, um, you know, how, he was telling us how long it had been in, a, in a existence, the Bible Society in India. And he said, one of the things that's interesting is that up until recently, the Catholic Church wanted nothing to do with the Bible Societies. They would not participate. They didn't support the Bible Society. He said, but now all of a sudden, he said the Catholic Church is a strong supporter of the Bible Societies. They're sending them all these Bibles and all these things to be added to the Bible Society libraries all over the world. But the Bibles are Catholic Bibles, and they include the Apocrypha. Isn't that interesting? So they could, before, at first they were like, no, we don't want nothing to do with the Bible because we don't want people reading the Bible. But ah, if you can't beat them, join them. Flood it with the Bibles with the Apocrypha in it. 
Very interesting. But the Bible at this point in the prophecy comes back to life. Um, and fear fell on, uh, upon them which saw them. Verse 12, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying, come up um, hither. And of course, it is about this time that you're about to move into the time of the Millerite movement. So you see what happens? I mean, literally not long after the French Revolution, going right into the early part of the 1800s, all of a sudden the Millerite movement comes on the scene and the Bible becomes even more clear than it ever has been. So it's not just that the Bible proliferated in the Bible societies, it's also that the Bible proliferates in people's understanding of it. Right? So, and the same hour was the great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell. Some say that that tenth part is one-tenth of the ten tribes, France, which fell. And who took over in France at that time? You guys remember? Napoleon. I would, man, I would love to, I actually would have loved to have met Napoleon Bonaparte. Sounds like a fascinating guy. Very self-confident. Um, and he was obviously too self-confident in the final analysis. Uh, got, him, got himself whooped. But Napoleon comes on the scene as an emperor. So here's the irony of the French Revolution. It starts with them wanting all these freedoms, all this equality, do away with feudalism, do away with the lords. Ultimately, they did away with the king, Louis XVI, I'll show you a picture in a second, put the man to the guillotine so that they would be free, so that they have liberty. And all that winds up with all of that talk when they remove God is they replace one dictator for another. Except Napoleon sends them into war and kills off many of their sons and the French treasury is drained. France really is never the same after that. They lose um, Haiti. Um, I forget what they, the French name for it. Saint, uh, uh, I forget the, what the French called it, but we call it Haiti today. They lose Haiti to a slave revolt. And the slaves, on the very principles of the French Revolution, the slaves beat the French and take back their land. Um, take back the land. And all of that happens so bad it gets that the French... When Napoleon comes around, he's so strapped for cash at one point after the slave revolution that Napoleon actually sells for like a nickel an acre or something. I forget what it is exactly. For nothing, the whole Louisiana purchase. So all of Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, parts of Texas, parts of Alabama, I mean, a big swath of the United States going way into the Midwest, we get for little or nothing because of Napoleon's oversized ambition and a, and in many ways, the effectiveness of that slave revolution. So yes, interesting, huh? So there would be no New Orleans, all that stuff, without that, right? So he gets into trouble. Um, the Bible here says, the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly, and the seventh angel sounded, and there was a great voice in heaven, saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This equates in the seventh plague, of the, uh, in, the, in the seven last plagues, to where it says, it is done. Here, it's, it gives you more detail, and, um, and, and he's going to set up his kingdom, and the four and twenty elders, which sat before God and in, in their, on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And look at what it says. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they shall be judged. This is speaking to the, the beginning of, the, of 1844 and the, and the um, investigative judgment. And that thou shouldest give reward unto the servants, thy prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. So, 
One of the interesting things you see is, and them that fear thy name. Some people believe, you read the Adventist commentary, that, that means the people who never got a chance to really hear the name of Jesus. So powerful what that might mean. So verse 19, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So the focus, if you follow this timeline, 1844, where did the focus go? It went from the timeline of the 2300-day prophecy to the temple, right? And then it goes to the Sabbath, which is in the center of the law. The temple is open. The law is open. Seventh-day Adventist church comes into existence a few decades later. And here's how you get. So you follow that all the way through. The French Revolution, though, changes the world. It changes the way people see things. It brings the occult movements to the forefront of the world, shows that God can be removed from society, and it, it starts really a war on the things of God. And so I, if you, if you want to read a really good or listen to a really good lecture, I just did this course, The Great Courses, uh, Living the French Revolution in the Age of Napoleon. It is, you know, maybe I'm a, a bit of a history nerd, I don't know, but I, I couldn't stop reading, I couldn't stop listening. I have the audible book, and then I have the PDF I, I, you know, it's just fascinating when you study it, because if you understand prophecy, history has another dimension. I'm going to say that again. If you understand prophecy, you study history and there's a third, fourth dimension. I wish I had that in high school. I probably would have paid better attention in history class. Um, but, it, you know, all of a sudden it comes to life. So as I'm listening to what Robespierre says and Danton, and you're listening to what these people say, you're realizing that this is how the prophecy is going to be fulfilled, the de-Christianization efforts of France. All of it was a part of what is prophesied in the Scripture. Very profound. All right. So this is Answers in Genesis. If you guys aren't familiar with Answers in Genesis, Answers in Genesis is a brilliant way to get information, especially on uh, creation evolution issues. So if you ever have questions about it, this is one of the websites you can go to. It's not an Adventist website, but they do have really good stuff. And they have an article that says why the French Revolution is a warning for Christians today. The French Revolution was based on social justice. I'm going to say that again. It was based on social justice and it went completely sideways. And I'm going to show you that it, not, only did it, not only did it not, I already mentioned that it, it, you got rid of one king and got an emperor instead, which was worse, but a lot of what happens in the middle really does the French no good. So here's Louis XVI being um, put to the guillotine. I mean, can you imagine he was a king? He wasn't a very smart king um, if you read, when you read about him, but he, he was the king and he was, they really initially wanted a constitutional monarchy. Like the British kind of had. That's what the, initially the French Revolution wanted. But as it went on, they wanted more and more and more. And to me, you see the effects of dark forces. As it went from a very sensible, because that kind of a, upheaval to change a society that much that fast really didn't make a lot of sense. A gradual change would have made more sense. You would have been able to stabilize the country, but the country becomes unstable, and that's how you get the reign of terror. That's how all of that happens. And on the right is the storming of the Bastille. Um, which today, I think it's July 14th, and every year in France, they still celebrate it. So the French, even to this day, they, they recognize the revolution. I mean, they, they still recognize the revolution. And one of the things that was interesting is that this reign of terror happened. And growing up, you read about it, think about it, hear about it. They tell you Marie Antoinette said to the masses, um, let them eat cake. Historians now say she probably actually never said that. 
I don't think she, I don't think she said it, but they lied a lot on poor Marie Antoinette. They, they, they accused her of all kinds of adulterous affairs and stuff that now historians say probably wasn't true. And it was probably all a part of what you know, people do to other people on social media today, right? If you can malign a person enough, people are, feel justified in treating them poorly. And I think that's what they did to the queen, who was Austrian, and they were worried that she was making an alliance with Austria, which she was trying to, but not to overthrow France as much as she wanted to just get out of France. But her husband was showing off on his way out of France, and they figured out who he was. Not, like I said, he wasn't the brightest dude uh, in the in bunch. But the Reign of Terror was a frightening time. And I, but I want to show you that the Reign of Terror, which is the time when a lot of the people were put to the guillotine, but a lot of people died a lot of different ways. They say here, we will never know the precise death toll. One careful count of all, these of all those executed through the judicial process yielded a total of just under 17,000. 17,000 people executed publicly. I mean, so people are like celebrating. They would like take the heads and pass them around the streets of Paris. French look real sophisticated now, but that wasn't very sophisticated back then, right? Um, but such figures do not include executions without trial or death during incarceration, and given the miserable conditions of many of the prisons, a substantial number succumbed before they could appear before a tribunal. A total of at least 40,000 deaths seems not unlikely. So here they went from, we want equality, we want fairness, remove the tyranny of the king, to a time when, in fact, people were just getting lined up and slaughtered. Listen, even Robespierre and Dantot get killed on a guillotine. Robespierre was the one sending people to the guillotine. They say even the guy who made the guillotine went to the guillotine. Right? So, I mean, it was a horrible, horrible time. And let me show you, I'm just, just so you know what we're talking about. That's the guillotine, right? It was, the, it was called the People's Razor. And they said it was, a, it was a more humane and just way to kill. I don't have a good picture of a guillotine. Because it quickly, bam, the person's head would fall off. Poof. And they said, well, you wouldn't feel it. I'm not sure who, how they know that, though, because who, who was the test sample that came back and said, yeah, that wasn't so bad. That was better than being hung. I don't know who said that. I, I'm not sure how they could do that. I'll take questions at the end. All right, so, so here's the reign of terror. And then so you go to the here, he says, a total of at least 40,000 deaths seem not unlikely. All classes, moreover, were touched by the executions. Over, look at this. Over a fourth of the victims were peasants. So it wasn't the rich like you, like you would think it was. And nearly two, a third were artisans or workers. Only 8.5% were nobles and 6.5% were clergymen. So here again, it's supposed to be equality. We're gonna fit. And in fact, what really ends up happening? It's this, it, nothing really changed except all these people got put to death. And so uh, one of the things that was said, um, it was, um, it was um, uh, said by, uh, by Robespierre, he said, Tear the order of day. If the base of popular government in in peacetime is virtue. The basis of popular government during a revolution is both virtue and terror. Virtue without which terror is baneful, terror without which virtue is powerless. Terror is nothing more than speedy, severe, and inflexible justice. It is thus an emanation of virtue. It is less a principle in itself than a consequence of the, of the general principle of democracy applied to the most pressing needs of the patri or the homeland, fatherland. Isn't that interesting? So it was like we sanctioned terror. So when people say, listen, it's impossible that you'd ever have a Sunday law or a death decree based on a Sunday law, we Adventists are ridiculed for having such an idea. But if you study history, humans are very capable of quickly devolving into a place 
where it was, these tribunals were, were, were secured by law, and then these executions began to happen, right? So one of the key outcomes of it was the de-Christianization de campaign. The most controversial and radical movement of the revolutionary culture, uh, uh, culture makers was the de-Christianization de campaign. In this campaign, zealous Jacobins tried to put an end to Catholicism forever, and all Christianity, right? One notorious event has gone down in history as the emblem of this campaign, the Festival of Reason, held inside the Cathedral of Notre Dame in November 10, 1793. Inside the cathedral, a small temple was constructed and dedicated to philosophy. Sculptors of the philosophers ordained the temple, and a beautiful young woman personified liberty. A simple flame burned to, to represent the power of reason. They took over the church and erected the goddess of reason. People were stunned by the idea of transforming the cathedral into a temple of reason and shocked that the female representation of liberty might actually be a goddess of reason. And so you went from equality, let's throw off the feudal system, to now, literally, you throw off the, try and throw off the shackles of Christianity in general, Protestant and Catholic, and you wind up with a goddess of reason. And I say all of that to tell you that that's where we are today. That if you are a believer, there are many people who instantaneously think you are disqualified from being considered sensible. When I went through my thing um, in Georgia and Pasadena, I'll never forget the Los Angeles Times wrote that article on me. I talk about it all the time, and they said, listen, this guy cannot, he cannot hold a scientific position in the United States. And the number one reason the lady who wrote in the editorial for the LA Times said was, he believes God created the world. That's what she said. Because he believes that, he should not be allowed to hold a scientific position in the United States of America. That is profound. And that speaks to this move to de-Christianize America. When Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, totally inappropriate, shouldn't have done it. Not what this talk is about. But he did slap the man, right? Afterwards, Denzel Washington goes to Will Smith and he says something to the effect like, when you're at your highest point, the devil seeks you the hardest, or something like that. He said something to that effect. Will Smith, when he's, he receives an award. Now, I find that amazing. He slaps a man and still gets the award. So then he goes to receive the award, and in tears, he stands at the, at the, at the podium, and he says, you know, Denzel said to me backstage, when you get to your highest point, that's when the devil comes at you the hardest, or whatever he actually said, something close to that. There was a guy, and one other actor, who said, listen, this kind of fundamentalism has no place in the public sphere. He says, why are they talking about a devil? He said, the guy, this other actor, I could find it. I just want to run out of the talk. He said, uh, there is no devil. Right? So while you're distracted by Big Will Smith smacking little Chris Rock, there's a whole other thing happening. There was a direct statement that, in fact, speech of God or devil should not, be, should not happen in the public sphere in the United States of America. And there's fundamentally a few, reasons, few things wrong with that, based on the four, First Amendment of the Constitution. Number one is you have freedom of speech. If, you want, if, if, if there truly was no devil or no God, which there are both exist, but let's say they weren't, you still have a right to believe it, and you have a right to say it in the public sphere, if there's, or else there's no freedom of speech. And more importantly, you also have a freedom to, of a religious expression. But what I want you to see is that this spirit that, of that beast that comes out of the abyss has begun to plague America. And I, I experienced it myself firsthand. 
Because it is, it is a real thing. And why is that relevant? Because the other thing that happens in the French Revolution is that the occult take roots in the French Revolution. And I, this is something that I did not really see initially. I knew that there was it, the, one of the other ties between the two beasts, meaning the, beast of, the second beast of Revelation 13 and this beast from the bottomless, of this, from the abyss in Revelation 11, is that both of these powers also had strong Masonic roots. There was a good book, um, Masonry, Freemasonry in Washington, D.C. It's like a pictorial. You ever go to D.C., you can actually take the book and walk around and see all of the, point out all of the stuff. All of the ways that they marked the city with occult Masonic symbolism. And one thing that ties it back to France is the same symbolism. The same, not just the same symbolism, the same belief system. Right? It's, it's, it's tied to it. I have an uncle in one of these organizations, secret organizations, and um, I never grew up knowing him because I didn't grow up with my father, and I got to meet him. And when I met him, and he started telling me this group that he was in and what they were about, and I started asking him some key questions, he clammed up. Because inherent in many of these things is Luciferian doctrine after you get to a certain height. Now, many of the people just in the lower levels, they don't know the difference, or maybe they do, but most of them don't know the difference. But as you get to the highest levels, it is a cult. And both, both nations have this milieu. And so this is from Cal State uh, University, Dominguez Hills, this um, master's thesis by someone named Christy Rodarte. And this is what it says. This study an- analyzes the intellectual propositions of Abbey Augustine uh, Beruel in his 1798 work, Memoirs Illustrating the History of Jacobinism. 1798 is literally the year the Pope is taken captive by birth year and the time of the end begins. So it's an interesting time that he picks. Uh, Burel's investigative documentation of an 18th century conspiracy reveals that the French Revolution was predominantly attacked on Christian-style civilization. This is Cal State Dominguez Hill, so this is not a Christian institution that his kid is writing this from, or this person. The memoir, the memoir describes prominent French philosophers and occult secret societies uh, con- concocting a spiritual and political ideology which propelled the revolution into a vehicle of anti-Christian cultural animus. This study examines these ideologies and by doing so offers insight into why the Jacobin Club, Jacobin Club campaign of dechristianization ultimately took place during the French Revolution. Uncovering this conspiracy through the use of Burrell's intellectual framework offers a neglected and highly contributory perspective toward French revolutionary studies. This student did this study, and I have to get this paper, but basically showing you that underpinning the French Revolution was occultism and a move to wipe out Christianity. And that's happening today. And we're told this in Revelation chapter 16. We're warned that after the close of probation, that there would be three unclean spirits like frogs that would come out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, and out of the mouth of the dragon. Right? All three of these things would happen. And that spiritualism would be the glue for all of them. And this is what we're beginning to see. And so after the French Revolution, this is Eliphas Levi and the French occult revival. That's Baphomet. And if you look at many of the popular artists of today, um, this, is the, this is who many of them recognize. You know, they, I have pictures of Beyonce wearing a Baphomet ring or wearing a Baphomet motorcycle thing. And, you know, over the years you see this. But this guy was um, a serious occultist. He, came, he was studying to be a, a, a priest in the Catholic Church. He actually remained a deacon 
but he got deep into magic, Kabbalah, uh, alchemical studies, and in eventually influenced a lot of people, including Aleister Crowley, who then influenced the Beatles. In fact, Aleister Crowley said he was this guy reincarnated, right? I mean, so this is some dark stuff. And this all begins to come out of it. Now, just, just to show you before our next lecture that, we, that spiritualism is where a lot of the social justice movement is actually taking you. I'm going to say it again. It is actually a march into spiritualism. And if you're not careful, you think you're doing good work like the people that started the French Revolution did, only to end in terror, and then an emperor, and then war, and war, and more war. Here's what Karl Marx says, who was also influenced by the French Revolution. He said, religion is the opium of the people. It is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of our soulless conditions. We'll talk more about Marx in the next talk. But this is what shows you, and I'm going to show you where Marx really, where he gets his, his thinking from. 1 Samuel 15 again, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Why does the Bible, see, now here's where you see it. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Why is rebellion like the sin of witchcraft? I, was, I wondered that, even as a kid, because I like the story of, of um of Saul and how Saul messed up and he didn't, didn't do what he was supposed to do and kill off all of those people. And Samuel gets in, he's like, if you did what I said, why can I still hear the bleeding of sheep, right? And then he says this to him. Rebellion is like witchcraft because rebellion, when you rebel and you say, I'm going to fix the problem, you elevate yourself to the place where you're saying, I don't need God. Why the civil rights movement is so different than all the other movements is the civil rights movement as core said, listen, we're going to change America, but we're going to do it in prayer. We're going to do it singing hymns. We're going to do it praying even for our enemies. We're going to do it praying for our country. We're going to do it all with all of those different things. And because of that, the country was rattled, the country changed, and you didn't have a war. When rebellion is what you want to do because you think you're right and everyone else is wrong, it's like witchcraft. And I'm going to show you that it gets deeper and deeper um, than that. Here's what Ellen White says. She says, at the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law. She's speaking of prophetically now. Not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed. Have we seen unrest, riot and bloodshed? The worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. There was a reign of terror. There were wars. It was unstable for a long time. I don't know the French fully ever recovered from it, honestly. Um, then she says this. Such are the influences to be met by the youth of today. Why is the study of the French Revolution, Revelation 11, important? Why is it important? Because this is what the youth of today are going to face. What you see happening around you, the cries for justice, the cries to fix the world, the, the, the victimization of some, and the calling every people colonizers and oppressors, just wholeheartedly just saying all these group of people are one thing. This is the same spirit of the French Revolution. 
to, and this is what the youth have to do, to stand amidst such upheavals, they are now to lay the foundations of character. Let me tell you something. This is why Ellen White says it in the book, The Southern Work. We'll talk more about that tomorrow in, this, in the lecture. You don't want to miss tomorrow because I'm really going to show you how Ellen White was probably the greatest, one of the greatest modern champions of social justice in word and in deed. I'm going to show you that tomorrow. But one of the things she talks heavily about is character. And interesting, she talks about the fact that men should be judged by their character, not the color of their skin. And it's not till the 1960s that someone else famous says the same thing. Martin Luther King says the same thing. Judge by a character. And here's what happened. That's not the way we do it anymore. Now what we do is we basically look at people and say, this is what they are. We've actually, in my opinion, we've gone backwards in our progress around race relations in this country. Because rather than simply saying, listen, I'm going to judge you for who you are. I want to get to know you. We look at people and say, we call, look at when they call white women Karens. That drives me nuts. I have a good friend named Karen. I don't like people calling, making Karen a bad name. But you just say, look, you're a Karen. What, what, I mean, what does that mean? Just randomly, now all of these people can just be easily classified and dismissed. And this is what will happen. And it, I mean, it happens in all directions. This is not, a, it doesn't create solution. It will create the upheaval that we're going to talk about, actually breaks society apart and causes more problems. So some of the key principles of the French Revolution, those of you who freak, speak French, and I, I know some of you in here do, um, I know liberty, equality, and fraternity. The rest of the words, except for maybe unity at the top. I don't know if that's indivisibility. I'm not sure. But I, I won't try and, and mess with the French. But those are their principles. But here's some of the real key principles. The fight, to actual and, the, the fight was to actual and perceived wrongs. The, it, to understand, you got to say the feudal system was terrible. The lords, the priests, they had, they had to pay fees to the priests, to the bishops, to the lords. That they, I mean, these people worked the land and they had to pay fees to the people whose land they worked. It was, it was as bad. In, in some ways, it was worse than slavery because they had to pay people to use the land. It was horrible all across Europe. That was part of it. There was great uh, uh, injustice. And so the French Revolution was an answer to that. Rising costs. Great inflation, France could not keep up with demand, all kinds of bad things would happen. But what they did, secondly, was they attached God or some other traditional institution to the injustices um, that they sought to correct. So what they said is, listen, France is not fair, France is not equal, it must be the church's fault. It's God's fault. Right? So let's get rid of God and we'll have a more fair society. When in fact, it was never God's fault. Right? They elevate humans or man-made systems as the solution. So the French Revolution did, so they came up with a republic. They kept coming up with new constitutions. They were coming up with new constitutions all the time. They terrorized or canceled those that dissent. Did you get that? So when they had the reign of terror, anyone who they thought just didn't agree, they took them and led them to the guillotine. I mean, you know, thousands of innocent people had their heads taken off in a reign of terror. And I want to submit something to you. We live in a reign of terror today. And I'm going to show you why I say that in a second. Right? You end at the beginning, right? You start off with tyranny and inequality, and you wind up with it. And then ultimately, the goal is that the government replaces religion and the family. It's a new type of nationalism. The children belong to the government, and this is what you see happening in public schools. They want you, the schools to train. Listen, I, what's funny is I live in a very liberal state, Connecticut, 
a lot of great people in Connecticut, and even some of the most liberal people I know have pulled their children out of public schools and are homeschooling them. Bill Maher had a whole segment, you can YouTube his little segment, on, on him starting his own Catholic school because the public schools in America are so bad. Isn't that crazy? Atheist Bill Maher is saying, listen, the public schools are so terrible, and he shows the videos of teachers getting beat up and knocked out by students and all the stuff going on in the schools, and, you know, and, he's, and the kids aren't learning in public schools in America. Pull them out and start your own schools. I mean, but the government doesn't want you to remove the school because they want to influence your students, your children, right? And if you've ever read the book, The Dumbing Down of America, it tells you that there's a lot to why they do that. So let's go back to number three on there, and that's cancel culture. So this is a great book. If you've not read this book, The Canceling of the American Mind, um, it really is a lot of what I went through. Uh, It is profound. And this young lady um, uh, who helps write it, Ricky uh, Schlott, she's she's brilliant. She reads it on Audible. If you you listen to it on Audible, but it is a brilliant book that tells you a lot about it. And she's very balanced. So she tells you how the left and the right politically are canceling people. But it is very frightening when you begin to look at it. Um, and I had some, of the, uh, um, some graphs that she does, I'll, maybe I'll show them tomorrow, about how many professors are canceled. Professors are canceled and run off campus because they don't say the right thing and they don't believe the right thing. And the point of the book, big part of the book, is that the universities and colleges in this country have become monotone in belief. And unless you agree with what everybody, and, and, I mean, she gives testimonials of students who say, listen, I disagree on this issue, but I literally can't say anything because I'm afraid I get run off of the campus. And you're seeing that now with what's going on in a lot of American campuses around what's happening in the Middle East. It's really interesting to see how quickly you can, I mean, literally say, basically, you know, annihilate all the Jews in the world, and people say, okay, that's okay to say. I don't think that's okay to say, regardless of what side you fall on the, on the, on the, on the um, conflict. So Yale University says, uh, uh, as an example of how these, these schools have failed and how a lot of these policies reflect like the French Revolution, I'll go to Connecticut's famous uh, Yale University. This is the Yale Ledger. And they say five reasons why we should legalize cannabis. This came out just this year. So I want to show you how this ideology of the French Revolution backfires, right? You start with, okay, let's solve a problem. And now you wind up with a worse problem than you started with, except now you've made people basically slaves to, in this case, a chemical, right? So I won't go through all of them, but number one, legalization for the environment. And under this one, they say, listen, you know, if pot is growing illegally, it'll damage the environment. I'm doing a thing, I'm doing some research on, 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 on the environment, and I, I was reading the thing where they said, uh, one, one, I think it was from England, one guy uh, said, you know, if you, uh, humans breathing is contrib- contributing to climate change. No, the, and I, I thought it was a joke. They actually seriously like, well, no, it's because people are breathing. I was like, so what are you supposed to do, not stop breathing? <laughs> um, but then they said legalization for justice, Right? Where cannabis is illegal, people are being arrested and charged for possession or sale, which leads to costly court cases and burden on the criminal justice system. Legalization would free up law enforcement resources to focus more on serious crimes and simultaneously reduce the number of people incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses. Um, And this would save taxpayers money. What they don't say here, of course, is you could decriminalize marijuana and not make it legal. So you notice they don't give you the whole story because they're right. And it's a true problem. You had... 
mostly poor people, black people, brown people, being locked up at disproportionate rates for long periods of time for marijuana. It really wasn't fair. For decades this happened, and it didn't really make a lot of sense. So you could decriminalize it without legalizing it. What's the difference? Well, if you decriminalize it, you can't set up dispensaries, right? You can't now have people legally genetically modifying it so that the THC content goes from 3% THC to 30% THC. Right? So by legalizing it, you created a vein. And you know, you know Ellen White was a, a prohibitionist? I mean, she fought the cigarettes. She fought alcohol. I mean, she would, fight, she would have fought the legalization of marijuana. Because once the government legalizes, it does change the tenor of what happens. Now, I believe people should have a right to choose certain things. And that's why I would, I would have chosen, if they'd asked me as a public health person, de, uh, decriminalizing it. But when you legalize it, now you've got a profit incentive Big corporations can step in and change everything about the drug. French Revolution, you start with a problem, you wind up with a worse problem. You start off with Louis XVI, not so bright, you wind up with Napoleon, very ambitious. Right? So, um, it's, it talks about justice and equity, and it says here, you know, um, communities of color have been particularly affected by the war on drugs, which black Americans being nearly four times more likely to be arrested for cannabis possession than white Americans, despite similar rates of use. And that is very true. But I want you to see as we go through this that, in fact, even that has all backfired, right? So by regulating cannabis, cultivation, sales, legalization can help eliminate the black market and reduce the involvement of criminal organizations. So this is all the arguments they make. Let me tell you something. The, the, the criminal organizations, I'm not so sure you make it legal that the people running it still aren't criminals, personally. All right, so public health. And then they start talking about how all of the health benefits of marijuana. I was, I was in South Central Los Angeles. And I was doing a talk um, to one, the high school in South Central LA, and I was, we were talking about, you know, I was talking about the dangers of marijuana, and this kid stood up, looked like Snoop, actually. Um, and he stood up, and he started yelling at me, marijuana's good for you, it's healthy. Marijuana's a health thing, you know, what, what are you talking about? They, get, they use it to treat cancer. He said, it's natural. I said, son, poison ivy's natural. <laughs> Just because something natural doesn't mean it's good for you. But, it, but everyone, Sanjay Gupta had a whole two specials on this, and all of this. But they, what they do is they tell you all the good. They're not telling you any of the bad stuff marijuana does. That's French Revolution. They're not telling you the other side of it. Ellen White says this is what we're going to have to deal with. Right? So they want public health. They want it for the economy. Right? My state, Connecticut, probably would not have legalized marijuana. But then Massachusetts, always ahead of us on stuff like this, legalized it. Then New York legalized it. And because Connecticut is smaller than San Bernardino County in California, they figured, what's the point? If we don't legalize it, we're going to lose all the tax revenue. And I was talking to one of the elected officials, and that's what she said. Like, listen, at, at some point we have to legalize it because our tax dollars would have just gone to Massachusetts and New York. So we might as well legalize it. Right? So there's this whole argument about taxes and acceptance. Final legalization could help reduce the stigma surrounding cannabis use. This is really what they're after. Right? Let's destigmatize it. Because they were they, old movies like Reefer Madness, some of you may remember. They really stigmatized marijuana use, made you look like you were crazy. And they say, listen, we want to change it. So has all of this worked out the way they wanted? Well, no. And it's not Christians saying it. This is the political left. Broken promises. How marijuana legalization failed communities hit hardest by the drug war. It, it's not working. There's a lot of reasons. They give only one. Let me give you the other reasons, and I see it in clinic. 
You take someone who needs to do well in school, they're already in a school that performs poorly, and now marijuana is legal, so that it's easier for these kids to get their hands on marijuana. Guess what happens? Well, now they're smoking weed, but smoking weed makes learning more difficult. It increases the risk of psychiatric illness, like schizophrenia. We literally have people getting cannabis-induced psychosis. Now, snapping. I tell a story all the time about the kid who was given a, a marijuana brownie that was this big, and the, guy, the, the, the dispensary told him, you got to cut it into four parts, eat one part, wait however many hours, six or eight hours before you eat the second part, because when you eat uh, uh, the, the, the marijuana in edible form, it takes much longer to make you high, right? It's a slower release than when you smoke it. The kid was sitting there 35, 45 minutes later, still didn't feel high, so he ate another piece, sat 30 minutes, felt like Adam, ate the whole brownie. When it all kicked in, he had a psychotic break and jumped from the hotel window to his death. And you've just released that on the population. And the thing is, this isn't the marijuana that Bob Marley and Bob Dylan smoked. 3% THC was mild stuff compared to this stuff. For the sake of profit, because it's legal, they're going to try and make it more potent so you want to come back to it. And so kids don't even realize they're smoking stuff that is dangerous. That in fact, an experiment is being conducted on young people because they're smoking it and no one knows the long-term effects of this potent level of THC in marijuana. Nobody. So here's from the article. It says this. In long and, uh, and, uh, and contentious fight for marijuana legalization, lawmakers across the country won over skeptical colleagues by promising social justice. You see that? French Revolution. We're going we're gonna to fix the social problems by legalizing marijuana. Right? That's like saying, listen, we're going we're gonna to solve the problem that people can't pay rent by knocking down half the buildings. New York's plan would be transformative, right? Los Angeles, California would level the playing field. Illinois would right the wrongs of the past. You see the language? This is social justice. They can get people to do anything if they convince you we're going to help people, especially black people. And everybody signs up. But here's the, here's the results. The result, almost a decade since the start of the legalization movement, has been a series of increasingly elaborate programs designed to ensure that the spoils of legal, legal marijuana sales, and look at these numbers, which are projected to hit $35 billion this year which are projected and double again by 2030. Are you guys getting the numbers here? That this would benefit the communities hit, as hard, hit hardest by the war on drugs, which goes all the way back to the crack epidemic of the 80s and 90s. But a political investigation found that those efforts have failed to deliver the promised economic justice, while overwhelmingly white and wealthy investors seek to benefit from the cannabis boom. It was all a ruse. It was all a lie. So the people who carry the weight of all the criminality, spend all that time in prison and jail, are not going to make a dollar off of legal marijuana, or very little of it. And yet, their communities will be saturated with the dispensaries that are going to cause more problems in those communities. I live, in a, in a, I live out in the suburbs. I'm not ashamed of it. And the next suburb, our neighborhoods are all very liberal voting people, which is fine. Um, and... In the town next to ours, a very wealthy town, they all vote for the policies for um, marijuana to be legal. They vote for the policy for 
for um, increased housing so you could double up. Like, you know, they, in a lot of cities, they're trying to have you build another building in the back of your house so they can decrease the couch cost of housing. They all vote for that in the state elections. But guess what happens when they, when they vote in their own town? They're like, no, you can't have a dispensary in our town. So you voted for it to come into the state, but you don't want it in your town. What hypocrisy. So then where is it going to go? It's going to go into the poor neighborhoods. So literally, you see, I hope you get what I'm saying. I mean, so here it is. We're going to fix the social. And not, what you're going to do is make the social problems a thousand times worse. Because now these kids are going to be getting marijuana that someone uh, concocted and engineered to actually blow their minds. So the end is worse than the beginning. You started with Louis XVI. You ended with Napoleon. Right? Critics... Oregon's move to decriminalize hard drugs, a failure. So, not happen often that I'm talking about the state I'm in. But the, 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 the research and the results say this just hasn't worked. They thought if you decriminalize hard drugs in this state, more people would go to rehab. Like you could then convince people to go to rehab. They say it hasn't worked at all. Now, they don't see increases in violent crime or anything like that. I mean, I don't know how it's affecting homelessness. But clearly, it didn't work. Decriminalizing it didn't solve the problem. So you, you could get it decriminalized. And you got to remember, there are people like Soros and others who actually want these things legalized. And I'll end with this. And then we'll break for the next session. The antithesis to what the French Revolution was, was the civil rights movement. It was a Christian movement. And it is how much of the, we changed much of the world and saw much of those changes happen that we all benefit from to this day. It was through the civil rights movement that that happened. And that happened because of the doctrines and teachings of Christ were practiced, not in the churches of America, but in the streets of America. That's what happened. And it transformed America. And I'll submit to you that that is not what's happening now. It's threats, it's riots, it's violence, and this is not, that does not make for a more benevolent society. It didn't work in France, and it won't work here. And so our churches especially have to be careful that we sign up to be a part of those things. And that we will address in the next section. So let's pray. Father God, um, as we close out this section, um, I just pray, Lord, that we would remember the prophecy of Revelation chapter 11. This beast that comes out of the abyss, Lord, help us not to be influenced by that beast. Lord, let us follow the lamb whithersoever he leads. Help us to be Christians all the way through, even as we deal with social injustice. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded in partnership with AudioBurst, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.